Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I was looking for some investors to start this business. I thought it was a great idea. And everyone told me it was a stupid idea. That's why the business was started with $30, because during the recession, that's about all I had left in my bank account. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. It literally was started with a Cricket phone. I signed up for Cricket, and they gave me a free non-smartphone. And uh, I got the 50 free business cards from Vistaprint. And then I set up a one-on-one -on -one, um business uh, website. I believe it was free or might have been $9. So we're looking at about $25 to $29 startup costs. And I was in business. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Eddie Rich. He is the founder and CEO of Lodo Massage LLC, which provides on-site corporate wellness and mindfulness services ranging from in-office chair massages and chair yoga to meditation and yoga classes for corporate workplaces, trade shows, and events. Founded in 2008 with just $30.00. Lodo Massage now generates over $4 million in annual revenue and operates in 45 cities around the U.S. and has clients that include Airbnb, Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, Procter & Gamble, Google, Amazon, and many others that you would surely know. Lodo Massage operates with only five full-time corporate staff, but over 800 hundred licensed massage therapists and yoga instructors. Eddie has built his business with a location independent infrastructure so his entire corporate staff can work remotely and he can run his business from anywhere in the world. He has traveled to over 30 countries and recently completed the remote year program. We are right now traveling together on the Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And we are recording this podcast live on the train 
Eddie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. So good to have you here, my man. We have got to set the scene because this is, I feel like, the most incredible environment where I have ever recorded a podcast. We are literally on the world-famous Trans-Siberian Railway. We are on a 37-hour leg of this train going into Siberia. You and I are currently sitting in a dingily lit train car. It's about 9 p.m. in the evening, totally dark outside, and we have just opened a bottle of... Let's take a look and see what this is, because this is a local Russian wine. It is a white... I can tell you that, and I think it is probably... Georgian grapes, isn't it? It's some sort of Russian white. I can't even read what the label is, but this is what you can get on the Trans-Siberian Railway. You can get a white wine that is of some sort of Russian origin, and uh, we can't exactly read the label, but it's pretty good. And not bad, and it's a little brighter in the car thanks to the full moon outside. We do have a full moon shining in our window. So we're going to be drinking through this bottle, sitting in our train car, and uh, talking about some really, really incredible stuff tonight. Eddie, let's start just sort of with your background and your journey. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and then how you came to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I've, uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. We moved to Denver when I was in high school, then back to St. Louis for my senior year in high school and went to University of Missouri where I had my first stint with uh, entrepreneurship. I started a poster company called Goofy Graphics, made local posters ranging from anything from cartoons to official rules of a drinking game, which did not get good reviews from the uh, school board. And nevertheless, it helped the sales of that pretty well. And um, from there, started a IT business uh, shortly after a short stint in the financial business. And uh, that's how I ended up in the uh, corporate wellness business. I took what I knew from the IT business and applied it. Uh, My IT business specialized in advising companies on how to remote network into into their business. Can you talk a little bit more about that and also set kind of the context and the time frame for that? Because you were really, I think, a pioneer that was really on the front end of that. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how that contributed in your mindset in terms of helping those companies move towards more remote friendly operations? Absolutely. Well, you know, I got to a point, um, it was roughly right around the uh, recession. And uh, I spent about close to... uh, a decade managing networks, you know, on site and had a team of about five people. And it was just one problem after another running around the city, five servers to go down at the same time, no way to get to them fast enough, no other support staff. And it just, the burnout kicked in and I was, you know, seriously getting sick of it. And, um, uh, the recession didn't help any matters. It was making revenue very low. And that's, that's about when Lodo, massage was born to basically add a little bit of extra revenue during the uh, off times or the slow times of Lodo Cloud or, or was Lodo Land at the time. We uh, converted all of our clients to uh, hosted Microsoft servers. So we moved everything from a file server, exchange server, and I leased space 
on server racks uh, up in Seattle. And uh, it made life a lot easier. Clients were able to remote in. I had a backup staff that could fix their issues immediately. They were being monitored, backed up 24 hours a day. And the business became a lot more profitable right out of the gate when we switched to cloud. And um, by uh, the time uh, 2015 rolled around, I had every single client running 100% off the cloud. The clients loved it because they were able to allow workers to work remote, work from home, cut in, cut away from sick time and uh, snow days and so on and so forth. And it made a lot of my businesses more profitable as well. And how did that affect sort of your mindset moving forward with respect to remote work as an entrepreneur yourself, as you went on to then eventually start Lodo and, and develop that in the location independent infrastructure that it exists today? Can you talk a little bit about I guess both the journey in terms of building Lodo and building it in what is today a location-independent infrastructure, but also sort of how that experience maybe influenced your mindset and the way you were thinking about it as a business owner. Absolutely. Well, as the transition from Lodo land to Lodo cloud occurred, I very rarely had to leave my home. And uh, so technically I was working remote, but I realized at that time I could work anywhere I want. The one thing that was stopping me was the sudden emergencies that can happen in a cloud business that even though I was able to work remote, I couldn't engage into other activities during the day that would require my immediate attention because sometimes uh, an emergency could happen that, you know, if I was snowboarding or hiking or whatever, I wouldn't have the ability to fix something. It wasn't something I could get back to at a later time. When I decided to move forward with Lodo Massage, I realized that Basically, it was making sales, working uh, in SEO, marketing, so on and so forth, making uh, the company grow, but I could do it on my own time when I wanted. It doesn't matter if it was two in the morning or two in the afternoon. And I wasn't hard pressed to deal with emergencies other than an occasional staffing issue, which gave me a lot more freedom and flexibility. So then I was able to travel a lot more at that point. And how did you, when you were conceptualizing Lodo Massage, which is, again, not a business that people would probably initially off the top be like, oh, yeah, that's a remote business I could run from the other side of the world. Um, How did you initially conceptualize the framework of that business? And can you talk a little bit about, you know, your journey in building Lodo Massage and building it to now uh, an infrastructure where both you and your corporate staff are are totally remote? Well, I essentially use the same infrastructure as Lodo Cloud. Instead of sending out IT people to fix broken networks, I was sending out massage therapists and yoga instructors to relieve stress. And instead of getting complaints from clients every time I sent somebody out to do a repair, I was getting compliments and basically high fives for de-stressing their workforce. So there was a lot of positive reinforcement on that. And the margins were essentially the same. So it was very interesting with a lot less residual stress on my end. So I chose at that point to grow the on-site chair massage business, and I re- left Lodo Cloud relatively stagnant. You know, I still was doing good. I was still monitoring, and eventually I sold it off in 2016. And then from there, as you were focusing on the massage business and continuing to grow that and build that, can you talk a little bit about just what the infrastructure of that looks like today and how the business functions, any of the sort of systems and processes, just to get people kind of an inside behind the scenes look at that business? It started off as uh, me 
handling everything from taking the calls, making the sales, responding to contact forms, scheduling the therapist, interviewing the therapist, interviewing the yoga instructors, making sure they showed up on time. I handled it, paying them collections if it was needed, so on and so forth. It was a one-man operation run from my house. As the business grew, I could no longer do it by myself. So uh, I brought somebody in to assist me. Uh, I trained her in all aspects of the business, but primarily she was handling the uh, what we call the therapist coordination. So I would make a sale. She would assist me in making sure we had somebody to cover the job and she would follow up to make sure the person showed up and knew exactly who to contact once they were at the job. We grew further and we hired salespeople, uh, a different therapist coordinator, and the business grew to about five people. And initially we moved it to a office location. We were going to go to a work share, but we rented out a uh, the top floor of uh, a massage studio that I own. And we moved it to that location. And it was working great for a while, but it was on remote year that I realized that my staff could actually do a better job working remote. They weren't going to be stuck in traffic. They'd be able to answer calls earlier in the morning. Uh, It's one of these things where if we get a call for a sale, we don't respond right away. Uh, we could lose the sale to our competitor immediately. So my my biggest concern was making sure we answered every call, answered every contact form immediately. Can you talk a little bit about that? And let's just contextualize Remote Year as well for people that may not know about that program. You and I, of course, have both done the Remote Year program, and we actually met through the alumni network of that program. And it's basically a work travel program for professionals that can generate location-independent income that could be business owners, freelancers, remote employees, whomever it is, and you travel the world together. They have a four-month version and a six-month version and a 12-month version of the program. Um, And so can you talk a little bit maybe about that, about your experience on that program and what your mindset was as a business owner when you started the program and then what sort of lessons or insights or epiphanies or, you know, development happened on that program for you? I think for me, my biggest concern was uh, at the time I did remote year, I was 56 years old. I've always viewed it as something younger people do. Um, wasn't sure if I was fit enough. Uh, I, I wasn't sure if I could really step away in another city, even though I never really was at the corporate office very often, I just felt more connected being in the same city, being closer to the people who were running my business. I was surprised to see that there was a lot more older people involved in this kind of networking. And there were some CEOs, ex-CEOs, people who were business owners that simply had their business running smoothly and were able to step away. And at the same time, there were people who were working sometimes 10, 12 hour days, they're just doing it in another forward city, which made it a little bit more fun for them. So the age was not a factor. Other, other things I can, was concerned about was health, you know, things like that for being the age I was. Can I keep up with the young kids and so on and so forth? There seemed to be a good mix of people all over the board. There was quite a bit younger people, but there was a lot of people in their 40s. And I've met several people that were quite a bit older than me. My fears were actually subsided. The uh, thing that I had the most difficult time with was letting go, letting go of the business to the point where I knew that my immediate knee jerk reactions would be done from remote. And sometimes 
I would be sleeping with an email came in, you know, depends on where you are and the time zone changes and a fear of letting my staff make some of the key decisions without my input. And that was that was one of the things that on remote year that I was able to, to work through. And can you talk about that process, though, because I feel like that's the case for a lot of people, whether they're planning to do a program like remote year or they just aspire to have more location independence and more freedom in their own lives. But they have this fear barrier, you know, that I don't know if my business, if that could really work. So can you share anything more about sort of like what the that sort of process was for you and any tips you would have for people that are aspiring to move in that direction? Yeah. Uh, my my initial fears were more on the technical side. Who's going to collect my mail? I had a, a an aging dog at the time, and I w- I only did the four month program, and um, and I was very attached to my dog, so that was a really tough thing for me to do. I had not spent, you know, I did a lot of remote work at the time. I would pick a city, go there for a couple of weeks, fly home, and everything was pretty much the same. You could let your mail sit for a couple of weeks, so there's a lot of those technical factors. But the uh, the one thing that was vastly different was really letting somebody else make some emergency key decisions that could impact the profitability and the future of your business. And that was the toughest that was the toughest thing for me to work through as I left. And I think the ultimate answer to that was I, I felt being gone after the first couple months, I realized that I had a staff that was probably more competent myself. <laughs> they were doing a phenomenal job and and without me breathing down their neck and micromanaging them, they were able to make decisions that were actually possibly even better than I would make on my own. So uh, I found uh, there were some points on remote year I found myself to be in feeling a little bit retired, <laughs> a little bit useless for my own company, which was uh, a little concerning as well. <laughs> Well, and does that, do you think that also relates to an evolution of your leadership style and or of the company culture as you sort of moved into that direction, had those experiences and and how the the company subsequently operates today? Any reflections that you have? Because I am curious in general about your leadership style as a CEO and an owner and how you create company culture. So I'd love for you to comment on that in general, and then any sort of evolution over time in terms of where that's at today. You know, I've been told my leadership style could be on a whim, I guess is the best way to put it. I can make a decision quickly. And then I'm told I changed my mind a lot. But I always tell my staff that that's a good thing, that I have the ability to change my mind. That's not a bad thing. I realize I've made a mistake and I have no problem saying, whoops, this is not working out. Let's uh, back up and take a different direction. And uh, it can drive uh, employees crazy. But nevertheless, uh, I think being able to realize you made a bad decision is a good thing. As far as uh, my initial style of this business, I was very hands on. I was always at the office. I was always, you know, present. I met my staff members for lunch, dinners, whatever created events to go out and hang out and and get to know each other. But we had a more of a team camaraderie that I think disappeared a little bit when I started to step back. 
but I realized that they were trained with my mindset, my vision, my direction, and they, they continue to keep the same energy in the business moving forward. Awesome. I want to also drill down a little bit and talk about some of your areas of expertise in business and some of the things that you've done and the competitive advantages that you've cultivated. The first thing I want to ask you about is efficiency, systems and processes, and how lean you've been able to keep your team and your operations and that sort of stuff. And you, when you and I were talking earlier, you sort of identified that as one of your strengths and sort of competitive advantages. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that and also how you're able to do that. I, I think I had a little, uh, little bit of an edge there because my other business, the cloud server business, I created, not only did I just maintain, in, you know, systems, remote systems for people to work remotely, but I literally changed the entire process of 35 different companies in Denver to for their mindset for being on site that has to be in their under their roof to the ability of working remote and the simplicity of working remote. And I was able to create systems that helped other companies that made them a lot more efficient, a lot more productive, and were able to hire people in other cities without a hitch. And I literally got a little jealous. I thought, man, I just need to do this myself. I mean, why in the hell am I making no money <laughs> teaching other people how to do this? And uh, uh, it kind of came about. I thought, I'm going to apply this to my own you know, company, and, and I'm going to pick a field that I know nothing about. And honestly, I'm not a massage therapist. I couldn't massage a dog. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a yoga instructor. I'm probably the worst yogi you'd ever meet. But I was able to create a set of efficient tools to allow people to work remote. And I was able to keep the staff down to a point where a lot of the stuff was automated through any type of uh, on-site, you know, ASPs, basically, you know, anything from a CRM to web-based accounting. And I outsourced a lot of our stuff as well, too. I mean, I didn't want to be bogged down doing my own books. So I outsourced a firm, you know, that specializes in doing, and they're out of India, actually. They have a call center here in the U.S., but most of the work is done overseas. So, and I outsource my website and I outsource my marketing. Uh, eventually, we did bring some marketers in-house because we were doing so much marketing, it was just less expensive at the time. But everything became, it's almost like that book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Everything just became an idea in my mind and then finding someone to outsource it to and applying it into my own company. I also want to ask you about one of your other areas of expertise, search engine optimization, which I know has been a real staple of your business success. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that and just some basic, a basic primer on, on SEO and the concept of it. And then, you know, if you want to share what, how impactful SEO has been for your business. And then I would love for you to share any tips or, you know, value that you can impart to aspiring entrepreneurs that may want to try to improve their SEO? I think the, uh, the key on the SEO, I was pretty much self-taught. I read a lot of books. I even read SEO for Dummies. It was the first SEO book I read. And I had a lot of experience doing it as a consultant in the IT world as well, too. Bottom line, you want to get more traffic to your website. In addition to more traffic to your website, 
you want to get more people to see you the minute they're looking for your particular service. You, they don't, they, you don't want to be on page two. You don't want to have them scroll down 20 different competing businesses. You've got to somehow make your name on top. That's the whole point of SEO. If you do that, you're going to drive calls, you're going to drive contact form submissions, and you're going to save a, a buttload of money on hiring an outside sales force. Instead of hitting people one at a time, you're hitting people thousands at a time. Because the minute somebody wants your product, they're going to turn on the computer and they may not even use a search engine. They may just stick it in their address bar of their Windows computer and type chair massage or widget or whatever you sell. And and if you want to make people call you, it's best to be number one organically and even in the uh, sometimes the paid advertisement area. Well, I remember when you and I were initially talking about this and you had listed off some of your mega huge high profile Fortune 500 clients. And I was very impressed with that. And I said to you, how did you land those clients? I was like, did you do a big campaign where you they were your dream clients and you were targeting them and you finally closed them? And you were like, no, they just found me on the internet. They Googled and they contacted us. And in a nutshell, I mean, you know, when we got called by Google, Google Googled us. <laughs> <laughs> that is unbelievable. Because we didn't send anybody there. So and uh, in the city that hired us from Google, both uh, we didn't have much of a presence. So I highly doubt it was a referral from a, we had some smaller clients. And so bottom line, we got Googled by Google. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Do you have any tips, either specific tactical tips or, you know, conceptually the ways that entrepreneurs should be thinking about improving SEO in their business, maybe mistakes people are making or things they can be doing better? Yeah, it's hard to give a, a direct tip because it changes hourly, it seems like. Um, you know, there's all kinds of different formulas, Google web crawlers use, uh, there's other areas. You know, bottom line, the most important thing is to get drive as much traffic to your website and get as much engagement on your website as you possibly can. That's going to give you an organic search. The other thing is the primary basis for a company, much more important than Yelp, is just being in the, the new... It's it's about two years old now, but the Google My Business platform, which replaced the most of the Google Plus for business, and to make sure that when someone is Google, whether you're auto repair, whether you're a content writer, whatever it is you do, someone's going to Google the service that they want to look for, and it's best to show up within the Google My Business because that's going to be on top. If you're in Google, that's going to be on top above the organic search of the name of your company. So we put a lot of emphasis on on making sure we're number one in Google My Business. Awesome. And are there any tactics that you can share? I know you talked about when you went into this business and you went into this space, you really relied upon your SEO expertise that you had as a competitive advantage that you wanted to put into play to start and build your company on that. Are there any tactics that you've used along the way, either years ago or today, uh, that you can share that were sort of creative or interesting or, or differentiated you in the SEO? I guess area? without giving a trade secret away, because it seems to be working, I created a way that we appear to be very popular local, locally in every city we're in. And I shoot for the local SEO. I had to make a decision on how I wanted to market our services. And I could either spend a ridiculous amount of money with 
advertisements, mailings, flyers, an on-site team that hits pavement like a lot of people do, you know. I'm sure you get a lot of walk-in sales reps for different, you know, office supply companies and so on and so forth. Or I could take that same investment, quite a bit less actually, and dump every dime of it into optimization of your website. A lot of people, I find it very interesting how many businesses completely disregard SEO in general. I don't own an SEO business. I don't vouch for any of them. Some of them are some of them are not as good as the others. Some of, their, some of them can be quite fraudulent. However, it is a huge factor in the success of your business. If you're not present on the web, you're not going to be found. And one of the key things I learned about how to get found in each city is to focus on the local searchability of the city that you're in. Because you want to waste time with phone calls coming in for a different product. You don't want to waste time for phone calls coming in for a city that you have no presence in. So you really have to pinpoint where you are and how to get the calls coming in that city specific. Awesome. I would love to hear, you know, in terms of your journey, any entrepreneurial journey, there are always bumps along the way. There's always setbacks. There's this concept that all business owners know about called the entrepreneurial roller coaster, which goes up and it goes down. And I'm wondering if you can share any challenges or setbacks, you know, that you've had along the way and what you learned from them and how you responded and overcame them. Well, the first setback is, is uh, I was looking for some investors to start this business. I thought it was a great idea. And everyone told me it was a stupid idea. So um, that's why the business was started with $30, because during the recession, that's about all I had left in my bank account. (laughs) Um, So I didn't have a choice. It literally was started with a cricket phone. And this this is absolutely the truth. I had a meeting with one of my massage therapists that was my personal massage therapist. Her name is Mary Hart. And, uh, asked her some questions at a sushi restaurant and I got a cricket phone <laughs> and uh, I believe I signed up for cricket and they gave me a free, you know, non-smartphone. You had to be smart to use the phone because the phone had no intelligence. And uh, I got the 50 free business cards from Vistaprint and I needed 50 more. So I think I created a second business account in a different email address and got another 50 free business accounts. And then I set up a one-on-one business uh, website. I believe it was free or might have been $9. So we're looking at about $25 to $29 startup costs, and I was in business. (laughs) What were your first steps at that point? Because I think this is a really, really great example of, you know, truly bootstrapping something. And for entrepreneurs – entrepreneurs, aspiring business owners that want to take that leap and they really don't have a lot of resources or they don't have that kind of stuff to start a business. I would love to hear from that moment, what then were your initial steps to go out there and start building? You know, I I see a lot of entrepreneurs wanting to start and I've worked with a lot of them now um, after the success of this business. And the one thing I see in common with so many is they want to get rich quick. They don't want to work hard and make it grow. Uh, They don't want to put 14, 15 hours a day, which sucks. But 
if you read any of these business books, it seems to be the one thing in common by any successful entrepreneur is you put in your time and then you can take the time later. And you got to live it, breathe it, think it. I was answering sales calls while I was on the ski lift in between snowboarding to make sure this business worked. It was turned on 24 by 7. I think that knowing how... The other thing, I guess there's another area. People are so desperate to get it going, they they get stupid about raising, you know, get, getting investors into their business. They start giving away immediate 2% and 5% and 8% ownership into the business, which sounds like a great way to get money quick. But then when the business starts to do well, you realize you're giving away a ridiculous amount of your margins to pay off the investors. And suddenly you're being told what to do and you have too many people breathing down your neck. I think that having an approach, understanding that it may take some time to grow the business and really trying to grow it internally before you go out and get investor happy. Some Sometimes you need it. You have an idea and it may require five or 10 million. This business did not require that much startup capital to get going. And because of that, we didn't have to have a lot of revenue in order to show a profit. But there are a lot of businesses that are inventions and so on and so forth. But the key is to understand that it does take time and it does take work and not view it as a get-rich-quick scheme. 100% agreed with that. I'm also curious, Eddie, about how you structure your day and optimize your productivity any tips you have on that? I'd love to hear if you have any morning routines or, you know, how your workday looks to be as productive as you are. And I suppose there's different phases of your business, obviously, when you're kind of in the intense grind mode versus at different stages when you're in less of that. So feel free to, you know, caveat that if you like. But I'm curious about your day structure, morning routines, and how you optimize your productivity. You know, a lot of emails come in over the nighttime, and sometimes during the night you have time to process some thoughts. So when I wake up, it's pretty much the same routine. I make a cup of coffee, make some breakfast, anything from a banana to uh, usually something quick, a uh, fried egg, and sit down and just run through my emails, from, even from the prior afternoon. Sometimes I quit checking my emails at a certain time because you need to step back and give yourself a little bit of a break. And it's not efficient to, uh, I, I have learned that it's not efficient to have your emails coming through 24 by 7. And uh, it, it will destroy your mood. You feel like you have to answer the email immediately. There's no way getting around that. And so I think checking your emails in the morning uh, is a great idea. And then maybe sometime in the afternoon, I know there's some other books that have said the same thing. But I basically, every morning, I look at the financial markets. I look at the news, any breaking indicators of where we're heading economy-wise, which seems to change on a daily basis this, these days. And uh, I check my emails. I look over our bank accounts, financials. And I check in with my staff usually every other day with either a phone call or an email. could be a simple question on, hey, how's it going? But at this point, my main role of the company right now is to maintain the financial structure the business, create our growth pattern, and, you know, basically help out with any pressing or big issues. And how do you personally deal with stress as you are going through the business journey when things get stressful or there are setbacks or catastrophes that happen or different things like that, and you go through highly stressful moments or even in life? 
how do you manage stress? Do you have particular techniques for that? And then how do you handle business challenges? Like how do you approach a business setback? Well, my initial gut reaction is to have a shot of whiskey, but that's not a healthy solution. So as much as I do love whiskey, I think my favorite way is some sort of an outdoor activity, some sort of an outdoor activity where you can be alone with your music and feel the surroundings of the outdoors. It could be anything from a hike to a solo day snowboarding, a simple walk in the park, or sometimes an urban hike, throw on your hiking shoes and walk downtown about two miles and just people watch with very loud, heavy metal music blasted through my ears is, is one of my favorite ways, actually. Very happy that Tool came out with a new album finally after eight years. But anyway, um, other than that, I try to do anything I can to get my mind off of the pressing issue that's causing the stress and then come back to it. And a lot of times, and you can ask my staff this, I will make a what they call a knee-jerk reaction, and they somehow have been able to pretty much disregard those, and they usually wait about two days for me to come back with a a better solution to handle any kind of a pressing problem. (laughs) So it's kind of funny how people get to know you after you've been working with them for a long time. (laughs) Did you, when you were starting Lodo Massage, how did you select that particular space? Did you do market research? How did you sort of assess a product market fit and test for minimum viable product? I mean, did you go through that whole kind of process? Like, how did you select and know that that space would work and there would be demand and you'd be able to compete and scale it to this level? Very unorthodox way. I did zero research whatsoever. I got involved with indoor bouldering, And I hurt my shoulder, and I started getting massages all the time. They included chair massage at Whole Foods, and they included a subscription to Massage Envy, where I went probably three times a week. (laughs) One day, while I was at Massage Envy, I was getting a massage, and I thought, you know, I got an idea. Instead of sending IT people out, and it was, I'm going to send massage service out to my companies, because they can do no wrong. I'm going to get positive response. I ran some, you know, I ran a handful of preliminary numbers based on what I could charge and what I would pay the therapist. And uh, I realized that the business is identical to the on-site network repair business. However, instead of sending out IT staff, I was sending out massage therapists. And that's pretty much what led to the big whopping $30 investment. And um, here we are. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting the Maverick show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, 
without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation. If that sounds interesting to you to learn more about it, you can just go to the maverickshow.com slash consult. And now back to the episode. Today, 11 years later. That's awesome. That's amazing. What would be your biggest tip to entrepreneurs that are starting out or that are sort of maybe they've already started, but they're looking to really scale their businesses and try to take things to the next level? What would be your main tip for early stage business owners? Uh, the main thing was is to feed off the naysayers because everybody you meet, you tell them your business idea, they're like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, I don't know if you should, you know, you need to stick to your nine to five job and show up to the office every day and, and make your, you know, your salary and take your one hour lunches. And uh, I really don't think you should be creative and try to make your own business. And um, basically, you know, tell those, you know, I'm not sure what we're supposed to say on this interview here, but it's like, fuck you to all those naysayers. As a matter of fact, I put a big out Thank you to the naysayers. Recently, I'm on a Facebook post. Thank you all the naysayers because every single person I had spoken with about the idea of starting a chair massage company said it was the stupidest idea they've ever heard. Wow. Sounds like what a lot of people say about this uh, digital nomad lifestyle that we're both... uh, (laughs) I'm dealing with that now, too. Engaged in. (laughs) People think I'm out playing on the road, which I am. But I'm also working quite a bit. And uh, at the same time, I'm making better business decisions because I'm looking at the business from a distance and not being caught up in the day-to-day bullshit. And there you can make much better decisions. I think that's a really good point. And I think that's also a really good transition point to start talking a little bit about travel and the digital nomad Lifestyle, And I think that a lot of the location-dependent business owners and entrepreneurs that I interview say similar things to what you just said there in terms of the value that they've brought to their business when they embark on the digital nomad lifestyle and start to exercise some of that location independence. But I would love to hear a little bit about your journey into that lifestyle and some of those things that, you know, that you experienced in terms of naysayers or in terms of, you know, how did your, I know you have two kids that are uh, grown adults now. How did they respond to it? You know, how did friends and other people in your circles respond and what was sort of that transition like for you? I'm still going through a lot of it. My kids seem to be my biggest supporters, which is fantastic. I get messages from my daughters that I'm inspiring and they they love hearing my, they love seeing my photos. They love hearing my stories and they love how nomadic I've become. And the biggest issue I've had is, um, and, and it can come from some of the staff as well as uh, as well as family. Most of my staff is very supportive actually. And uh, it's the friends that really, sometimes wonder, what am I doing? Am I retired? They refer to nomading as vacationing. And um, I don't think they understand the concept. Some of them, I, I tend to feel that some of them have a little envious or jealousy. I hate to say that, but I try to keep my, my I don't have an Instagram that I post, uh, you know, every, every move I make. I'll post funny photos of something I'm doing in a different city. And I try to keep from throwing in people's faces that I'm here, there, and everywhere. And posting 90 different pictures of, of one city on, on Facebook and so on and so forth. But 
I do think that people think that I'm on this permanent vacation or I've become so successful that I no longer need to work. But I think in reality, what's ironic about that whole situation is my business has literally tripled in revenue since I've been on the road. And it's because I realized that I work better not being confined into a certain space that my staff, my five staff members that help me run Loto Massage or actually run it all themselves, work from home. I had two situations where two of my staff members had children recently and I was able to keep them on because sometimes the cost of living and the cost of daycare can be so overwhelming that it may not have worked out for them had I been making them come to the office every day, five days a week. Uh, and, uh, and they were very appreciative that they were able to work straight from home. I think that's so important. I mean, one of the, when I talk about location independence, one of the things that I say to people is that, you know, my specific lifestyle choices that I make in terms of how I structure my travel and structure my all this kind of stuff. That's a very personal choice that may not be exactly the right fit for everyone. But I do believe that location independence and having more control over your own life and where you live and where you work from and just having the choice and the control is inherently a good thing. And then how you choose to exercise that is totally up to you and is a very personal decision, as you're saying, right? If someone is a new parent and they have the flexibility not to have to go into the office and that they can work from home and that they can, you know, prioritize their kids as a new parent and all of that kind of stuff, that's an amazing freedom and that's an incredible way to exercise that freedom. Similarly, other people, you know, who choose to exercise it by being an itinerant nomad and seeing the world or people that choose to exercise it however they want, that's a totally individualized decision. But man, that being able to offer, especially as a business, because we do the same thing with 100% of our staff, right? The opportunity Absolutely. to live where you want, work from you want, from wherever you want. It also allows you to just recruit and retain the best talent because that's an extraordinary benefit. You know, and here, here's one thing. Here's a shout out to all the people who can't work remote because they're the people that are maintaining the servers in all the different companies that very rarely get mentioned, you know, when I'm in a lot of these remote meetings and workshops and, and nomad groups, there's a, it's, it's a 50-50 split. There are people that are busting their ass, maintaining the servers, maintaining the infrastructure so that the people who want to travel can do it. There, there's no way we can create a 100% nomadic society. It's simply no way. But there are jobs you can do. I, I see on the road a lot of content writers, uh, SEO people, business owners that have stepped away from their business that, such as myself, and I've met quite a few on this train trip as well, the Nomad train, and that can literally make really good decisions and do business. And, you know, one of the key is, is to really be able to do it work when you know you need to work. And it's to learn to say no to certain events or certain things that come up while you're traveling. Sometimes you have to work from three in the morning until eight in the morning in order to get your work done because you have to match your time zones with your staff. It is an amazing lifestyle. And I really do feel that exposing myself to all these different environments has helped me make really incredibly great decisions for my business itself. At the same time, working remote doesn't always mean you're traveling throughout the world in different countries. It could simply mean that you aren't able to make it to the office 
and to give the people that can't get to the office or have other pressing issues in their life work from home is a great opportunity as well, too. So remote working, it just covers a vast amount of people. Totally. Yeah, I've been location independent since 2007 when I founded Maverick Investor Group. But I chose to spend the first seven years of my location independence living in Los Angeles, California. Not because I had a business purpose there. Not because I had, you know, we weren't doing any real estate in Los Angeles. I just liked the palm trees and the beaches and the city of LA. And I was in a relationship there and all that. And so I chose to be in LA. I could have been anywhere, but I chose LA. But also I chose and still do choose every year to go home and spend at least a month out of every year with my parents around the holidays, spending quality time with them. Most people that, you know, in the United States that work a regular job don't have the opportunity to go if their parents live in a different state than they do to go spend a month with them every single year. But if you're location independent, you can do that and you can prioritize the places you want to be, the people with whom you want to spend time and how you want to sort of structure that. So that's what I tell people. It's just simply, you know, striving for increasing amount of location independence and increasing amount of freedom of mobility just simply that means that you have control and you have choice and and then you can exercise that however you want. But I think it's awesome though that, and you and I have had some great conversations about some of the similarities of the choices we've made, including doing remote year. And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about how the overall program went for you in terms of everything, the lifestyle, the travel, the social aspect of it. Like what was that experience like for you? Well, remote year, uh, I liked it because it created a a network of similar-minded people that I could immediately relate to. And that was number one. Number two, they were literally like a concierge um, that basically allowed me to travel without the extra hassle of planning this, planning airfare, planning where to live, and so on and so forth. A lot of people say, oh, I can do this cheaper than remote year or whatever. But, you know, really sit down and do it yourself. And it could take, unless you're seasoned, and you've been doing it for a while, there's a lot of things you have to look for. You know, what visas do I need? Um, where do I live? What's the popular neighborhood? What are the cultures of the city? You know, what are the what are the key 10 words I need to know in that, this language to help get by just a little bit easier, so on and so forth. And Remote Year did all of that for you. And But most importantly, it gave you a community. And it gave you the option to be with this community or it gave you the option to just completely be on your own and reach out to the community when you need them. And it was a, an amazing experience. And, and some of the friends I made, whether they were working nine to five remotely or whether they were business owners, there was some sort of connection with every single one of them. Didn't matter how old, didn't matter where they were from, didn't matter what race they were, nothing mattered in remote year. It was, you, you had a family of people that were like-minded, and it was pretty special. That's awesome. I agree. Super, super special experience, and the community aspect of it was was truly amazing. I know that and you and I have both obviously done a lot of international travel outside of remote year and in different contexts as well. And let me just ask you this, too, at this point in your travel journey, a broad sort of big-picture macro question Eddie, why do you travel? What do you get out of it in general? What does travel mean to you? 
at this point, I'm wondering if it's an addiction or if it's just so much pleasure that I just want to continue doing it. There's something in my mind knowing I can fit everything I need into a duffel bag. And um, it used to be a backpack, but then I hurt my shoulder. But anyway, and you really realize, uh, I guess it's the minimalist lifestyle. You think you need all this stuff when you're in a location. You got to keep up with the neighbors. You got to hit the hot restaurant all your friends are going to. You need to live in a big place and have modern appliances. And traveling makes you realize that it's fun to see different cultures. And it really hit me when I was in Vietnam, why I like to travel so much. I was working on a uh, project for my company and I broke away from remote year, which you're allowed to do at any time and spent a couple of days just really on my own. I wanted to see how can I get by in Hanoi, Vietnam, knowing no Vietnamese and very few Americans or anybody in that matter foreign and roamed around uh, with a laptop in a backpack and I remember sitting down at a coffee shop and being treated better than I've ever been treated anywhere in the U.S. or any type of work share or coffee shop and so on. And sitting there outside watching the chaos of the scooters, thousands of scooters going by every second. And I got more work done with all that distraction than I've ever got in a quiet office in my home state. And I realized that, wow, there's something about being on the road and working that was very appealing. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> and now you and I are participating. This is actually an organized event that we're on called the Nomad Train which Maverick Show listeners know Maria Saratkina, who I interviewed, who is one of the co-founders of the Nomad Train. She herself is actually not on this particular journey with us, but her staff are here. And this is a two-week trip from Moscow all the way through Siberia and down into Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, where we're then going to go on a trip and uh, explore the Gobi Desert and uh, see some of the insanely amazing landscapes of Mongolia. And so, you know, when we're here probably doing this with, I don't know, 28 or so other nomads from around the world. I mean, people are from all over the place. All over, yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. That, that are on this train, which is so amazing. But I would love to get your reflections on Russia in general, because you and I, before we got on the nomad train, we hung out in St. Petersburg, and then we hung out in Moscow, and now we are uh, we hung out in Kazan, and now we're making our way through Siberia. But I would love to get your reflections and thoughts on how Russia has been for you. Russia has, I, well, actually, let me back up. I learned to pretty much ignore any stereotypes of any country anywhere in the world because our media seems to portray things extremely incorrect, and especially TV shows in Hollywood, uh, especially when you watch some of these uh, 80s TV shows and or the retro TV shows, you, you don't think of Russia as being what it is now. And from the moment I stepped off the plane until St. Petersburg and walking around downtown Moscow, I don't think I've ever been treated better in my entire life. Everybody has been ridiculously friendly, uh, incredibly 
incredible sense of humor. I could walk around with my camera on video and pull anybody, any Russian off the street and say, hey, say hi to my daughter. And they'll gladly say hello. And if they know how to speak any English, even if it's just two words, they are extremely happy to do it. They welcome you with open arms, no matter what business you walk into, no matter what restaurant you walk into. And uh, they're very proud to tell you about all their different heritages. Uh, I've been everything from a Soviet cafe. I've seen a lot of the museums and walking around the art museum. The people who work there literally walked up to me, grabbed my map and said, you need to see this, this and this. I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, it's been the architecture has been beautiful and the nightlife has been uh, it's been a little bit distracting, but absolutely a blast. <laughs> Incredible. And the in St. Petersburg, the I mean, what, first of all, what a gorgeous city. Like, my goodness, just walking around St. Petersburg. It really is. It's like the Amsterdam of Russia, um, I would imagine. It's the canals, the lighting, the food cuisine, uh, the style the trendiness. It's nothing like you would imagine. And then they have a speakeasy scene there that blew me away. I probably went to six speakeasies while I was in St. Petersburg and just incredible. And then I just, you know, stumble upon these different scenes. I mean, what you were saying in terms of like diversity of cultural appreciation and different things that they have in Russia, my background, I was a hip hop DJ in the nineties. And so for me, hip hop is a big love of mine. And I go into this one speakeasy, it's called the secret bar. And it's in the back of this restaurant through the secret door, whatever you go in. And it's only, it's this tiny place and it can only fit like six or eight people. It's like this tiny bar. And this guy is this in there, you know, who speaks mostly Russian, very little English, but basically is is talking to me about music. And this comes up, this hip hop stuff, and he starts playing 90s hip hop in the secret bar. So the whole secret bar is playing just 90s <laughs> hip hop for me. And then he's like, yo, he goes, actually, he goes, I can rap because you want to, he goes, I can freestyle for you, but it's in Russian, right? So I literally pull out my my video and he starts freestyling for me in Russian in this speakeasy bar, right? But again, it's like that thing. It's like, where are you from? It's like, I'm like, I'm from LA. So he incorporates LA into his Russian language freestyle that he's doing for me, right? I mean, I knew that. I've known this guy for like five minutes, right? I literally just met him in this speakeasy by this Russian guy. So like, I mean, it was just amazing. And then I went to this other hip hop event where Lord Finesse, who's a very famous DJ, hip hop DJ from the Bronx, from New York City, is in St. Petersburg. He's doing a beat making workshop and then he's performing as a DJ. And so I go to the event and it was just, it was so amazing to see all, and he's playing all 90s hip hop, right? I mean, he's mixing and scratching all this 90s hip hop. And there are all of these Russian kids. And when I say kids, I mean, you know, in their 20s, you know, early 20s, mid 20s. They come out wearing their New York jerseys, you know? <laughs> they know all of the words in English to all of the 90s hip-hop songs, which were released before many of them were born. You know what I mean? And they're so into it. They're so passionate. It was just heartwarming for me. It was amazing. Last night, I was at a bar called Lock, Stock, and Barrel, and uh, the place was packed with many people younger than me, and 
there was a band, live band, and they played pretty much everything from the 60s, 80s, 90s, even recent stuff. A lot of, you know, poppy, heavy metal, you know, everything from uh, Bon Jovi to they even did Linkin Park and they did a damn good job at Linkin Park, sometimes in Russian, many times in English. But when it was in English, the kids, again, the same age, were just jumping up and down, dancing. The energy was mind-boggling. I even took quite a few videos of it and sent it to my friends and family. And they're like, what are you doing at a bar like that? But I go, because it's in Russia. It is pretty damn cool. It's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything that you would find in the States. Like you want this kind of music or that kind of music. And you want, you know, different, you know, sections of the population that are super passionate about it. You can find all that in Russia. Absolutely. Just, just as Absolutely. you can find it anywhere else in the world. Outdoor cafes, uh, a healthy lifestyle, um, whatever you want. You want vegan food? They have vegan, plenty of vegan restaurants. It's, uh, there's, it's, I don't find anything really hard to find. If I need anything, the grocery store is well stocked. I got dry cleaning done very quickly. I've had no issue whatsoever. And with a huge language barrier too. But for some reason, it seems to work. Yeah. Super, super, super impressed with both St. Petersburg and Moscow. I, I definitely want to come back for sure and, and spend Kazan. more time. Yeah, and Kazan for sure. Yeah, Kazan was a Kazan, I, I didn't have, again, it's these expectations, right? Like St. Petersburg, I kind of had sort of expectations for, but like Moscow, I was like, that totally exceeded my expectations. Kazan, I had no expectations for. I had no idea what to expect. And the bar I was talking about was in Kazan. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kazan, yeah. I had no expectations for. That was super impressive and interesting. So yeah, I can't, uh, can't wait for our next stop on this train. I think it'll just be increasingly interesting places as we cross Siberia and spend uh, a few days at uh, a handful of different places. So looking forward to that. Awesome. All right, Eddie, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Uh, yeah, I believe I am. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has influenced you that you would most recommend to people? Um, The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson, hands down. Uh, the Slight Edge is one of the most basic premises you could really think about. I guess it's an easy read, but it makes a lot of sense. And it's like every tiny little thing matters. It doesn't matter whether in business, oh, I don't want to work this hour because it doesn't matter. But it does matter because you add all those little hours you don't work together during that year because you think in your mind it doesn't matter and it totals up to be an enormous amount of time. It works in your diet. You know, I, oh, I'm going to eat this uh, triple patty, you know, burger with 10,000 calories because it doesn't matter. But you do that a hundred times of the year, a hundred times per year and you add it all up and it matters. And that's really what the slight edge It's like every little decision matters. So it's one of my favorite reads. I've given it to a lot of my staff members to read and some of my therapists have read it and they've all agreed it was one of their one of their favorite books. Awesome. Well, we're going to link that up in the show notes for this episode, along with everything else that we've mentioned and talked about. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and get the links for all of that. Eddie, what is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using you'd most recommend? I, you know, I, I just say it's 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 an app, but it's also a system, but it's a, a phone system. Ring Central has been epic as far as making our company work remote. 
we've been able to create a local phone number in every single city and it points to one centralized number and we can divert the calls coming in and break it up by sales territories. In addition, it's a task monitor where you can share tasks and assign tasks to different people. They, they call it GLIP. It's part of Ring Central. And the third thing is it's an internal messaging system which allows you to internally eat, uh, message your staff real time or even make calls, direct calls, by just clicking on the staff member's name. It runs on an app as your cell phone, or you can download, you know, you can buy the phone system that they have, but we don't use the phone system. We've never bought a piece of hardware from them. We subscribe to the app alone. So my entire staff runs off of cell phones and Microsoft surfaces and we put the app on and it connects everybody as if they're local. In addition to that, it has similar to Zoom and maybe they license Zoom. I'm not sure how they get the technology, but we can do our video meetings, conference calls, whatever have you, you know, within our staff. And it allows you to um, invite outside guests as well, too, which is impressive. Awesome. All right. Who is one person that's currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with? Oh, currently alive today? Currently alive today. It could be celebrity, author, public figure, musician, movie star. I mean, it could be anybody, but currently living today. So it's this is an actual possibility that you could potentially have dinner with and you can pick anybody and magically they appear. And it's just you and this person for an extended three to four hour one-on-one dinner conversation. Who would you pick? Well, I guess if it was today, it'd be Barack Obama because I, I envy people and I admire people who have everything stacked against them. No handed wealth, no handed privileges and to be able to achieve what is supposed to be impossible. And that, that to me is a big, uh, whether it's uh, politics, whether it's business, I guess uh, someone who's not alive today would be Colonel Sanders because uh, he basically was 65 years old. He had been through God knows how many jobs and a failed marriage and bankruptcies and hardships. And at 65 years old, started KFC. And I don't know if you've noticed, Matt, but about every block in Russia right now and in Vietnam and in uh, uh, Japan and in Malaysia. And what do you see? What is the most popular chain of restaurants worldwide right now? For sure. KFC is all over the place. Absolutely. And, uh, and he was 65 when he started the business and he was 88 when he became a billionaire. But all the cards were stacked against him because of his age. I didn't start Lodo Massage until I was, you know, almost 50. And uh, I had a lot of things stacked against me at the time. And so never let your age be or never let anything in your life be a deterrent from trying to do what you want to do. That is an awesome, awesome piece of advice. Eddie, what is one podcast that you listen to or blog that you read or information medium that you consume that you would most recommend people check out? I think at this point, at this point in my life, the ones that I read the most, and I, I don't remember the author's name, but, and it's a, it's a series of them. I, I Google them when the subject matter remains uh, relevant to me is simplicity. And uh, really it's the minimalist. There's a lot of minimalist blogs out there. Uh, I subscribe to them anywhere from, LinkedIn to on some of my podcasts and reading ideas on how to really learn to live with less efficiently. And you, you and I have talked about this a few times, you know, how do you pack everything you need into a uh, duffel bag or a carry-on suitcase? 
you know, you want to look good when you go out. You want to be able to go to the gym. You want to be able to do yoga. You want to be able to hike. But how do you fit all of this into one suitcase? And it can be done. And the first premises is to be minimalistic. And and these these kind of podcasts, uh, books, and uh, groups that I even talk with basically kind of help me justify. Uh, a lot of people, when they start to make money, they want to spend it on crap they don't need. So they have you know, garages full of motorcycles and bikes and cars and snowboards and all kinds of stuff. And granted, I do, you know, in my base unit at home, I have some stuff I don't need, but it's it's definitely gotten a lot less than what I used to have. And the more I travel, the more I'm away from it, the more I realize I don't need it. What is one item that you always travel with or one sort of centerpiece of the selection of things that you do bring with you when you travel? What is one item that you would recommend? You know, that's a great question. And, um, and a lot of the funny thing I've seen is a lot of the travelers that I travel with don't put emphasis on this. They go, I'm going to buy a cheap cell phone because if I lose it, it's, you know, I can just buy something cheap. But if you buy some of the higher end ones, the top of the line ones that can do a lot of the work for you, you tend to break your laptop out less. And there's points in time when I could literally travel with a powerful uh, device in my pocket that can do most of the stuff that I need to do. A bigger screen cell phone that is powerful, that has a great camera, that has a pen like the Galaxy Note 10 is my favorite. Believe me, I love Apple to death. But they're, they're, they just don't have anything that competes with the, the Note 10. And as Samsung sometimes aggravates me because they, uh, actually, I shouldn't say that because they're one of my favorite clients, but uh, they're, they're simply, you know, a lot of software that gets downloaded on them that is, that is garbage. So you have to weed your way through that. But that device itself, I've been on this Nomad train now. I, I came early. I went to St. Petersburg, went to Moscow, and we're, we're deep into our second week. And I've opened up my laptop two times because everything that I need to do, spreadsheets, emails, Word documents, or, or, you know, and it actually runs Microsoft Word just beautifully well, all done on a, on a very nice, easy to read screen. And I have a pen. I can quickly take notes. That's awesome. Yeah. I think the minimalist packing thing for me has been enormous, really powerful. I spent the last six years since I've been full-time nomading, figuring out how to condense my life into carry-on luggage only so I'm not checking a bag, but also not compromising fashion and style and being able to do that, do a whole workshop. I have a whole video on it, uh, which I'll link up in the show notes if people are interested. But, um, I, but, but I'm also continually learning from people as I go. I mean, that's why, that's how I'm able to do it and continue to optimize is as I meet different nomads that are using different stuff or doing different stuff. And you actually told me about the pants that you're oh yeah take, and I want you to talk about those because I I'm I'm literally about to go track those down and and get them. Can you share a little bit about I those? I think they're from Cool. I don't want to give credit to a company if I'm using the wrong one, but I'm pretty damn sure they're very lightweight yet warm when you need them to be warm and cold or I mean air breathing whatever you call it. They wick away sweat. You can wash them in your sink and they'll dry in an hour. They're stretchy. They're like pajamas. But they look like dress locks. You throw on a black uh, merino wool shirt and you throw on the pants and you'll look. Uh, honestly, people can spend 
thousands on an outfit and you'll walk into the bar or the restaurant and you're going to look good. You're going to look damn good. Just gel your hair. Yes. That's amazing. You were telling me, you're like, yeah, I'm wearing them out for a dressy night at the cocktail lounge and then I'm also sleeping in them. Exactly. And you're doing yoga in them the next day. And, uh, and you know, obviously a dark color that doesn't show sweat. Black is great. And the other hack that I have clothes-wise is the Allbird shoes. I don't have them on at the moment, but they are a merino wool shoe. And you've heard of that, Matt, right? Yeah, I have. Okay, yeah. I've I've surprised how many people have Allbirds on this trip. They are literally like wearing socks, but they're shoes. The Merino wool doesn't smell. You could wear it about 10 times. Seriously, it doesn't smell. It will... If anything, it smells good <laughs> when it gets dirty for some strange reason. And uh, you could wash it in the sink and it will dry very, very quickly. It breathes beautifully. It's cool in the on the hot climates and it keeps you very warm on the cold climates. It's an amazing fabric. And it doesn't, you know, it, there's a time where it will start to look ratty after a few years of use or a few, maybe it depends on how many you wear it, but you can literally pack a suitcase with one pair of these cool pants, two merino wool shirts, all bird shoes, and a couple of pairs of socks. And literally nobody would know. When you wear a printed shirt and you're out, people remember, oh, didn't you wear that the other night? They don't know. You know, they see a slogan or they see a print, but you wear a black shirt. People are like, oh, he's got black on. I don't think he wore black last night. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And probably 90% of my gear is merino wool, everything from collared dress shirts to my running socks to my running shirts to, you know, 90% of my gear for sure is definitely merino wool. And I do a whole, you know, this whole video, which I'll link up is exactly how to, you know, pack using mostly merino wool to be able to look good, but then also to have all the functionality that you need. And as you said, versatility is one of the main pillars to that, right? Packing pieces that are versatile where you can create multiple outfits which don't necessarily look like the same outfit. And, and that's, the, that's the whole key is finding something that does everything. You know, back to the, the Note 10 or any, any top-of-the-line iPhone. I mean, unless you're a professional photographer, you can get by without a massive camera carrying around on your back. And that's the last thing you want to do is walk around every one of these cities with a giant camera because seems it seems like today everybody is taking phenomenal photos. And I did bring a big camera once on a trip and I went home and and I merged them all together on my Google photo app. And I honestly could not tell the difference between my phone pictures and my uh, high-end camera. And these newer phones, like the, uh, the new uh, iPhone 11 that's coming out and the Galaxy Note, the Galaxy Note 10 has four lenses on it. I have a fixed wide angle, a fixed regular lens, and a fixed telephoto lens. Not not a digital telephone, but an actual fixed telephoto lens built into this tiny phone. And, you know, I take pictures sometimes that accidentally come out. It looks like somebody, you know, set up a tripod and did all kinds of crazy stuff. It's It's got a amazing nighttime sensor that sometimes you can look through the phone and see better at night than if you with your very own eyes. This kind of technology is really helped between this and the cloud and the portability of notebooks has really spurned you know, has really generated a nomad community that has really was impossible maybe as little as ten years ago because you would have had to carry too much crap with you. And uh, it's kind of nice that you can and, and it's worth paying up. 
for the better stuff uh, and not to the contrary. You know, yeah, you might lose it. You might drop, you know, your brand new $1,100 phone in the ocean. And that does suck when that happens big time, you know, and uh, but it's it's just nice to know that that device has about 20 grand of, sh- of crap that you used to bring along with you and uh, all packed into one device. For sure. And the iPhones are now waterproof, which is what I use to, because I drop my iPhone into a bucket of water, you know, or a reservoir right. of water every six months like clockwork. I mean, that's just a Absolutely. given. And now it's waterproof. I was like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything more than a waterproof iPhone because I now have uh, a lot more durability there. But yeah, totally, totally agreed. All right, Eddie, let's move on to the final two questions, which are travel-related questions. I want to ask you for your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been to that you'd most recommend people check out? Well, I was blown away with Japan. Um, Absolutely blown away. I felt like I was on another planet. Um, Yeah, they have uh, uh, an infrastructure there that is so high tech. It makes every other country look backwards, primitive. Their train system runs on a dime. And uh, I mean, literally, they apologize over a loudspeaker if their high-speed bullet train is one minute delayed because they don't tolerate that. And so you know exactly to the second when you're going to get to another city. What I loved about it is they gave us, they gave tourists and business travelers a rail pass that they don't even offer to their own residents, which I was surprised about. But uh, they're able to literally go from one end of the country to the other in luxury. And I mean luxury. Beautiful, beautiful trains. Clean as you can be. And uh, the city, no matter where you are, the subways look like high-end, upscale Beverly Hills shopping malls. Every single one of them. Uh, I was blown away. I think uh, my second favorite city as far as remoting was quite the opposite. Uh, Hanoi, Vietnam, the constant chaos, the constant noise, but the entrepreneurial spirit in that city was something that I've never seen. I went to more startup workshops in Vietnam, in Hanoi particularly, than anywhere I've ever been. And they were all held by Vietnamese or put on by Vietnamese. And this is still under a communist regime. So it was interesting to to visit a a country that was so into startups, but yet, you know, in a different style government than we're accustomed to. And thirdly, I mean, Russia has blown me away. Absolutely. I mean, I'm still in it, but each time I go somewhere, my experience is like, why are they talking about this country like it's repressed? Or, I mean, I even joked, I sent a picture of a upscale, uh, I did a 360 video shot of a, a restaurant called White Rabbit, which is actually rated one of the best restaurants in the world. And I said, you know, you don't find these kind of restaurants and the service there was second to none. I mean, I learned not about how wine tastes and what it should be paired with, but the origin of the wine and what happened to the wine history from the waitstaff. And this was in um, this was in Moscow. And uh, I'm just absolutely blown away. And their 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 metro system walking through is like walking into a art museum. I mean, they don't have the shops and the stores like Japan had, but it's it's the opposite. Uh, walking into a subway in New York is honestly like a sewer. 
it's like you stepped into a sewer to get from one end of the city to the other. And most cities, Chicago, the same way, there's been no attention to detail and cleanliness and modernization. Russia has, uh, and, and even here in Kazan, I mean, the artwork will is literally, you would pay money in most cities to see this kind of artwork. And it's just right there in the metro system. Yeah, I went to White Rabbit as well. There's actually two restaurants in Moscow, White Rabbit and Twins Garden is the other one, that were, in 2019, they were both ranked in the top, when they did the top 50 restaurants in the world, both White Rabbit and Twins Garden were ranked in the top 20 in the world. And so I I went to both of those in Moscow and, uh, yeah, super, super impressive culinary scene there. And, uh, yeah, I I would agree with that. I have been really, really blown away by Russia. So, all right, Eddie, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been that are the highest on your list you most want to see them? Well, well, Matt, I haven't been nomading as long as you, so obviously there's a I probably have 20 things on my bucket list, but I've not nomaded out of South America yet. So pretty much every city there I want to do. I'm thinking um, I would like to, I would literally like to spend about two months in, in Sweden. And actually, you know, there's some layovers I've done that I feel like, wow, this is a cool looking city. I wouldn't mind being here. Um, Helsinki, Finland looked pretty interesting on its own. And I had a layover on my way to Russia and uh, I thought, you know, wow, uh, this would be a great place to work out of too. And, uh, so I, I can't say that I have top three on my bucket list other than South America is definitely number one, uh, nomading out of there, probably six months. That's a really good pick. We did six months on the remote year program. We did one month in Mexico city, which is North America, of course. And then we did five months in South America, but you had six consecutive months of Spanish speaking, you know, countries. And it was a really, really, really nice flow to kind of get into the flow of the Spanish language and then see similarities, but also the diversity, of course, you know, as you went from country to country down there, it was just really epic. So highly recommended. I think it's a good pick. I should say Turkey has definitely been on my bucket list, but I have uh, one thing I love about remoting is I, a lot of times I have a one-way ticket somewhere, but I have no clue where I'm going to go. And I don't know if you do that too, but uh, when I came onto this uh, nomad train, I had no return home flight. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to Seoul. Maybe I'll go to Croatia. I I just didn't know Croatia is also on my bucket list. I got a lot of bucket lists right now. Pretty much the more I travel, the more I realize how small the world is. And it's amazing how you run into people all over the world, whether you knew them in real life. I recently ran into somebody in Denver just at a coffee shop that I met in Chiang Mai out of the blue. Tapped on my shoulder. Hey, Eddie, what are you doing here? (laughs) And um, so... These kind of things happen, but uh, Turkey's always been on Istanbul. It's been really on my bucket list. And just uh, yesterday, I thought, oh, I think I'll hit that next. (laughs) That's awesome. That's where I'm off to next. Highly, highly recommended. Istanbul is an amazing city. And yeah, I do sometimes do the same thing. So I literally don't have a flight booked yet out of Mongolia. So I know I'm going to be on this train. (laughs) It's going to end up in Mongolia. I'm going to hang out with our crew and go explore the Gobi Desert for a couple of days. And then from there, I literally don't have a flight out yet. So I'll figure that out in the next couple of weeks. I think think most importantly that I like to add at the end of this here is that when you travel, 
whether it's for pleasure, whether it's for work, whether it's for remoting, you see the world from a different perspective. Your friendships grow outside of your three-foot circle. You're no longer keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, you don't really give a crap what your neighbor buys anymore, and you try to outdo them. Um, you don't care what size house you live in. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how little money you make. There are people on these trips that I meet that are barely getting by, that are sharing rooms with, you know, three or four nomads at a time, and they're CEOs traveling together, going out, bar hopping together, eating dinner together, and learning from each other. And we're learning the perspective of life from all different races, religions, nationalities, and cultures. And it makes you much more open-minded, and it makes you see the world from a completely different set of eyes. And I would not trade this experience for any materialistic item ever. Amazing. That is an amazing way to end this podcast, Eddie. I could not agree more. It has been absolutely fantastic having you on the show, my friend. We have just come to the end of this wine bottle in our <laughs> dimly lit, dingy train car. And on the, the moon is still shining right on us. <laughs> we are literally on a 37-hour train leg through Siberia recording this podcast as the train is moving and we're drinking this wine, which has been really, really a very special Maverick Show episode, my friend. So I thank you for being a part of it. And I want you to let people know how they can, first of all, find out more about Lodo Massage. If there are any businesses or event coordinators or, you know, folks that want to connect with Lodo Massage, uh, how they can do that. And then also people that want to follow you on social media, follow your adventures and find out what you're up to. How can people contact and follow you? Well, yeah, go to our website, www.lotochairmassage.com, lotochairmassage.com, and uh, choose which city you're in, and um, you can go from there. If you mention to the staff the word nomad, that you heard it on this show, this podcast, uh, we will give you a 10% discount. Uh, we provide on-site chair massage, on-site chair yoga, on-site yoga classes, uh, on-site meditation classes. Uh, basically, our main purpose is to de-stress employees. We are business to business. We do not charge the employees. It's a benefit a company does for their staff. Just like instead of ordering a pizza for everybody during a lunch meeting, have a hardcore meeting, and then de-stress everybody by massaging their back or create a you know, in-room chair massage, excuse me, a chair yoga event right after the meeting. And they all have the same effect. The The point of this is to de-stress and make your employees happy. And that's what we specialize in. Awesome. Love that. So what we're going to do is link up that URL to in the show notes. So you can just go to themaverickshow.com. We'll have the link. We'll have their promo code to get the discount. You can check out Loto Massage. And then, Eddie, if people want to connect with you personally, follow you on social media, are you what are you on Instagram? Um, you know, our Instagram is Loto Massage. Okay. Our Facebook is Loto Chair Massage. Loto Chair Massage on Instagram. Loto Chair Massage on Twitter. And uh, that's the best way to link up. Um, cool. You will get personalized service. We're not an app. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, you will get a human being that will be glad to talk to you on the phone and customize what you need done for your business 
just for you. <laughs> awesome. We will link all that up, social media handles, website, and everything else in the show notes. You can go to one place at themaverickshow.com. Just click on the show notes for this episode and you can get to all of that. Eddie, thank you so much for being here, man. This was a blast. It was fun. What a beautiful scene. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.